Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is Is There Life After Death? Thinking Aloud Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with Psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Understanding the Afterlife, and my guest is my old friend Dan Drazen. Dan is the author of a new book called A New Science of the Afterlife, Space-Time and the Consciousness Code. Dan is also a filmmaker, having produced a wonderful film about instrumental transcommunication, also known as electronic voice phenomena. It is called Calling Earth. And he's also produced a wonderful film about Skoll. The Afterlife Experiment, about one of the most important mediumistic experiments ever conducted. Dan is based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to see you again after so many years. Well, we've known each other a, a long, long time, many decades, and uh, I, I thought a great way to begin this interview would be to talk about how you got into paranormal research, because as I recall, you you were working with John Keel back in, in the day when he was uh, doing the investigations, if I recall correctly, that led eventually to the movie of uh, The Mothman. And, uh, so you have a very, very long track record as a paranormal investigator. That investigation was really one of the one of the most fascinating experiences I've had. My my interest in the so-called paranormal, and I say so-called because we don't know since we can't talk about it, how do we know how normal or not it is? And this is in my book, actually, which we'll talk about later. Uh, the longest chapter is about semantics. And how language influences our perception of reality, and and how we can see through some of that, and you know one of the one of the boogeymen is this term paranormal, um, which is it's it's a guess really more than anything else we don't know. Anyway, um, my own experience with the so-called paranormal began actually when I was quite young. Uh, as a child, I had um, had quite a number of precognitive dreams. And um, I didn't under, really understand what it was about, but it was enough to give me a hint that in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. That there are aspects of, of reality that, that we're not normally privy to or sensitive to or aware of. And <clears throat> this then started unfolding um, in the 1940s. I, I grew up um, in the 1940s on the East Coast. And um, that was when the UFO first emerged into public awareness. And so I found that fascinating. And, and uh, it, it posed very interesting and attractive questions to me. So I read everything I could on the subject. And um, long story short, in um, 1967, I had my first UFO sighting. And someone said, well, there's this guy, John Keel, who's giving a lecture next week. Maybe he's something you should connect with. So I did. I went to his talk and we became friends. We became instant friends. And he invited me to uh, accompany him on um, a trip to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It's a town on the Ohio River, which was actually in an area that has had a history of paranormal events um, going way back to the least to the 19th century. And um, as you probably know, and as, as people who've read John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, know, um, that area was going through, in the late, late 60s, uh, some very, very uh, strange events. Um, people were seeing UFOs, 
men in black were showing up, the classic men in black, um, and this strange creature, which people dubbed the Mothman, showed up, uh, scared the hell out of many of the local residents. Uh, quite a number of people saw it. Dozens, dozens of local people saw it, reported it to the local sheriff's department, the local newspaper. And um, it was, it was um, quite, a, quite a, a paranormal potpourri, you might say. And uh, I visited there four times, I think, with John and um interviewed quite a number of people and was you know quite convinced that this this was real uh I'm, i've witnessed a few little interesting paranormal events myself i never saw the mothman personally but um one time john and i and a local journalist mary hire who was an investigator of these things uh, were up on a hill overlooking the town and um we noticed a uh very strange little white object in the distance in the sky. It was, a, it was a cloudless sky except for one little tiny cloud that might have been taken from a child's storybook. It's one of these very, very interesting, almost artificial looking clouds. So this little white object flies into the cloud. And what emerges from the cloud is a small twin engine airplane. It flies right over our head. So we <laughs> looked at each other shrugged and said, okay. Um, on another occasion, um, I had a, spent some evenings on the hood of my car looking up at the sky to see if I could find anything. And a, a very strange sort of triangular-shaped formation of lights flew across the sky. Um, and at other times, I saw flashing lights in the sky, which were not related to any aircraft. Um, so I, you know, I, I've had at least this this limited uh, experience of, of paranormal events in the town. Um, eventually, as as you know, if you've read the book or even seen the, the Richard Gere movie of the Mothman Prophecies, which is very very loosely adapted from John's book, um, there was this this catastrophe on the river uh, the night uh, we were actually John and I were told by a psychic in the town of Point Pleasant. Uh, she said that there would be a disaster on the river the night that President Johnson lights the White House Christmas tree. So John and I were back in New York on that day, and on that evening we got together and um, turned the TV on and watched the ceremony in the White House and all that, and uh, didn't see anything else happen. So. John went out to dinner with a friend of his who'd shown up that evening, and I went home. And as soon as I got home, I turned on my TV, and there was the report that the bridge across the Ohio River at Boyd Pleasant had collapsed into the river, the loss of, of many lives. And um, it was – people had all kinds of theories about why that happened, um, that, the, that the, the Mothman and so on were – responsible for it in some way. Other theories uh, insist that, that the Mothman was, was trying to warn people about it. And this is something we'll probably never know because at the point after the bridge collapsed, the Mothman was not seen in that area again. And a lot of these paranormal manifestations just ceased. But um, my experience um, actually continued in a way because I mentioned that, that when I connected with John that evening in New York, he had a friend of his with him, a guy named John, who was an old friend of John, of, of um, his, name, his name was Joe, sorry, old friend of John's, um, whom John hadn't seen in years and had lost contact with. And Joe sort of turned up out of nowhere on this particular strange evening. I met Joe, a uh, big guy, a little taller than I am, mustache, very firm handshake, nice guy. Anyway, they went out to dinner. I went home. Sometime later, I find out from John that Joe had disappeared. He was untraceable. A couple of years later, John runs into Joe's wife in Macy's. And Joe's wife says, how are you, John? John says, how are you? How's Joe doing? And his wife said, oh, you didn't know. Joe died five years ago. 
John said, well, wait a minute. I just saw him two years ago. And his wife said, no, you, don't mess with me, John. I was at his funeral. I mean, I know I'm his, I was his wife. So apparently, um, Joe, whom I met, who was a perfectly physical human being, um, had materialized for that evening. And that one very special and interesting evening. Now, I had read about materializations and almost kind of dismissed them. But, you know, if, if this was in fact a materialization, it was, it was seamless. So it makes me wonder, actually, how um, how many of the folks we run into on the street might actually be visiting us from the other side. Um, raises many questions. An another funny thing happened. I, I had returned to New York from one of my trips to uh, to Point Pleasant, and uh, I composed a silly song about the Mothman. And I played it on my guitar and recorded it on a little reel of tape. Took the reel of tape off the recorder, put it on the table next to it, went to bed. The next morning I got up, tape was gone. Never found it. No one had a key to my apartment. Um, <clears throat> I expect that someday I'll be driving <laughs> along some lonely country road and some UFO will come down, a little green guy will get out of it with the tape in his hand and say, hey, did you lose this? <laughs> well, these are wonderful stories, and it, it suggests something very important. And I think John Keel is really one of the first researchers to, to point out the interconnectedness of a wide variety of different events that may, may seem unrelated to each other in the uh, paranormal arena, but they all seem to uh, somehow be part of a single phenomenon. How, how would you characterize that, Jeff? In, in all of your years of exposure to the whole spectrum of the so-called paranormal? Where, what's the common denominator? How does this all connect? Well, it, it baffles the mind. You could say it has to do with high strangeness. The, the things that most people don't even want to accept, even if they experience it firsthand as, as you have, the tendency is to push it out of the mind because they're all so bizarre. And, and we would just prefer to believe that somehow we must be mistaken, that what we experience couldn't have actually happened, but uh, they, they relate to UFOs, full-bodied materialization uh, that you experience with John and his old friend Joe. Uh, it's very rare, but the idea that uh, a creature would appear like the Mothman and uh, all of these things somehow are are connected. We don't yet have, to my way of thinking, an adequate scientific understanding, and and we may never, for all I know. But it certainly suggests that reality is is much more malleable and uh, th than we ever suspect. And uh, such things as as creatures appearing out of nowhere and uh, full bodied materializations of deceased individuals are, are two examples of, of the sort of high strangeness events that John Keel focused on. And even today, I can tell you most people in the parapsychological community want to shy away from those sorts of phenomena. They're much more comfortable with uh, something that is uh, statistically replicable, even if it's much less striking in nature. The parapsychology community is in a tough spot because they're they're really doing their best to bridge two worlds, and they're they're getting closer and closer. But it, I don't think it's really quite happened yet. I gave a presentation uh, with one of my films at the um, parapsychology um, conference at uh, Ions a few years ago, and um, I, I was really surprised at at the the degree to which. They really did not want to hear about the afterlife. Um, I was, I, I gave my presentation. I was actually also filming the conference. I gave my presentation, showed the film, 
and mentioned that um, I work with a team of mediums. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, Jeff, but where I work with a really remarkable team of mediums, we've set up a website. Um, <clears throat> it's called cosmicvoices.network. Cosmic Voices, one word, dot network. And um, it's got some really quite remarkable material that's been channeled by this, this team of mediums. And uh, one, of the, one of the things they're known for is having channeled the um, Challenger and Columbia crews after those space shuttles were lost. Uh, this is a long story I can't even begin to get into, but I mentioned this. And after my presentation at the Parapsychology Conference, a woman came up to me quietly. She said, I also heard, I'm a medium, I also heard from Kristen McAuliffe, you know, the school teacher who was lost in, in the Challenger um, uh, accident. And um, she said, and, and we, we developed a, a conversation about it. And now this woman herself has passed and has sent regards to me through my mediums team. So this is all this is all everyday stuff for me, and um, you know I've I've tried to give a taste of this in my book, which has just been published recently. It's called The New Science of the Afterlife, and in this book I've I've really done my best to bridge um, the, the the scientific um, basis or my my personal view of the scientific basis for um, these various levels of reality. And I, to me, it, it tends to come down to the question of frequency. That the levels of reality that interpenetrate our physical world are simply of a higher frequency. I mean, we look at, at physical matter like a piano string, which may vibrate hundreds or thousands of times per second, and uh, say, uh, um, then an oxygen molecule, which vibrates so many millions of times per second and then a light a light wave in our visible light range which vibrates trillions of times per second so to me an appealing speculation is that the realm of consciousness entails a vibratory frequency relative to our own time frame of course um, that is so many octaves higher than than our than the vibrations that essentially construct our, our physical reality, that the two can't normally interact. And the only exception, or one of the few exceptions, is through very sensitive biological and neurological processes, which is how consciousness can connect with and come through the brain and, and the body, and also give us the illusion that consciousness create that, that the brain creates consciousness. Um, but if you look at it, if you look at the whole um, the construct of these various levels of reality, just in terms of, of frequency alone, um, I think we have the beginnings of, of a unifying theory. I don't want to, I don't want to make too much of this, but whether whether it is literal or metaphorical, I think it's extremely useful because we can see the phenomena of frequency operating in our lives every day if we look for it. Right now, where you and I are sitting, there are thousands of radio and television and wireless communications going through our space, through our body right now. And yet they don't exist unless we have something that resonates with them, a radio receiver or a cell phone or whatever it is. And uh, so are, are our bodies operating in that same way, being transmitter receivers of a higher frequency of reality? I don't want to toss the word reality around too casually, but uh, I, I have to say that the longest chapter in my book, A New Science of the Afterlife, is about semantics. It's about how language virtually creates our reality. Uh, if, if any one of us who speak more than one language, I think, have some sense of how there are certain things that cannot be expressed in one language that can be in another. If you, if you overhear multilingual people in conversation, sometimes they have to switch languages in order to properly express a, a particular idea, um, which I think is, 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 is key to our understanding, one of the keys to understanding of how language um, 
helps create our reality. So the 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 uh, chapter in my book, this long chapter, which is titled "Don't Eat the Menu," which is about you know not not mistaking the word for the reality. Um, it's kind of a of a glossary, um, but I finally and this is a spoiler, but uh, I finally get down to asking, okay, let's define reality. And the bottom line for me is reality is anything that can give rise to consequences. To me, it comes down to that. And that includes the physical, the non-physical, the imaginary, anything that can, um, that can give rise to consequences. So um, I'm having a lot of fun with that concept myself. And I, I think it, it helps me to um, free my imagination, to free my sense of scientific inquiry, and um, to helps to, to unify the field, as it were, to not, not divide things so much up into physical, non-physical, um, and so on. I think it's all one big ball of wax, and that we as, as evolving beings um, one of our tasks and one of our delights is to bring our own um, imaginations to bear on this potpourri of reality um, to create a, not, not only a scientifically useful um, perspectives, but also to learn how to have fun with this universe that we live in. And, uh, you know, fun tends to be written off as superficial or trivial, but I don't mean it in that sense. I think there's a great joy in every aspect of, of our immersion in this creation. And um, even, you know, there, there's this physical joy, there's mental joy, this creative joy. And in the realm of mental joy, I think there's a lot of uh, potential in understanding how this amazing variety in, in nature and in life works together and dances together. So uh, anyway, that's, that's my, my theory of everything. It's a beautiful theory. I uh, really think that there's uh, something quite profound in the idea of thinking in terms of frequency, for example, rather than space. I I often wonder, you know, if the afterlife exists, where is it? And and what you're suggesting is it's everywhere. Well, that that's literally what what my uh, my medium friends say. You know, it's it's just all around us, and it's it's the relationship between our sense of space and the higher sense of reality isn't isn't exactly a one to one relationship. Um, at these higher levels or higher frequency levels or however you want to look at them, um, space and time are more like, I think the only metaphor we have would be a, um, a hologram made of consciousness, which does not have um, spatial or temp fixed spatial or temporal dimensions to it. It has the nature of consciousness. I mean, you and I can sit here as physical beings and if we want to imagine um, an elephant dancing in a pink tutu, we can do that, and all of a sudden there's an elephant dancing in a pink tutu. Now you can't. You know, the the frequency of the of the physical domain is a little heavy for that sort of thing, but in the realm of the mind, the realm of consciousness, uh, where there technically there are no limits, um, we can we can tune into and or create. Uh, whatever forms we wish on whatever time scales we wish subjectively. Um, I do in the book, speaking of time, um, point out that, that in the realm of both space and time, we are always dealing with both the objective and the subjective sense. Um, objectively, we deal with time and having our daily routines and schedules and meeting times with, with people. And uh, subjectively, we're always living with the fact that uh, time flies when we're having fun, and you know when we're not, it, it's a slog. Spatially, um, our, our relation to space changes in various ways. I mean, as a 
is a particular airplane seat adequate to, to our physical frame, you know? Uh, and that depends on our physical frame. It's, it's relative. So our perception of space may change depending on, on many things. Um, so all of these things that, that science loves to uh, measure objectively, which is all well and good, um, are basically an incomplete, incomplete picture of reality as we experience it. And our experience is really all we have to go on. And yours may be so different from mine that if I suddenly got inside of your consciousness, uh, the world will look very, very different and strange. <laughs> I have no, I mean, you and I can agree, for example, uh, that we're sitting at a table. But I have no idea how you perceive that table. We both we can both call it a table, but what you call a table and what I call a table may be subjectively very different. I get into this in my book. I have a lot of fun with this this business of subjectivity, um, and how how we are we need to I think uh, acquire a greater appreciation for our subjectivity, and that um, the more I appreciate the differences of your subjectivity, I think the more we can have uh, a more civil and loving relationship. Because I can't expect you to perceive things the way I do. Now, you seem to be suggesting that each person is like a universe unto themselves. In, in a sense, yes. In a sense, yes. Uh, we, we have you know, we, our, our own personal histories, even you know, forgetting about past lives. Our own personal histories growing up in this world with our particular family, culture, language, environment. Um, you know, those of us who grew up in New York City may have a very, very different sense of life than those who grew up in the in the country. Um, you know, we and we take so much of this with us as we grow up and 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 uh, uh, and, and move into the various stages of our life. Um, so I think the more the more we respect subjectivity, the more we respect each other, and and can forgive each other for for our differences, which may sometimes be abrasive, but um, just knowing that um, differences are simply differences uh, can go a long way, I think, towards towards helping us live live uh, better and more peaceful and more loving lives. Well, Dan, one of the things that I believe you and I have in common is that we have chosen to explore phenomena that are so bizarre that most people would choose to uh, ignore them completely or out and out deny them simply say it's impossible go away I, I i know you're lying to me and for example you've made an in-depth exploration of uh, what is known as electronic voice phenomenon or instrumental trans communication and uh, you have reported findings uh, and, and done so in a very credible way through your film work that most people would say this is impossible, it cannot happen, and, and yet you show that it does. Well, yeah, I, th I think that that this electronic communication from the other side is one of the most uh, wonderfully undeniable um, types of, of, of evidence for a, an afterlife or a greater reality or however you want to characterize it. Um, and the other, the other film that uh, Tim Coleman and I co-produced uh, is called Skull, the Afterlife Experiment. And that is an exploration of uh, what's known as physical mediumship. And that's another uh, highly evidential um, practice that is, is extremely hard to deny. And the Skull Experiment, this took place in uh, the small town of Skull in England in the late 1990s. Uh, over a period of five years, where these two couples met in the cellar, quiet cellar of this 17th century farmhouse, and were able to uh, manifest a huge variety of fascinating phenomena, producing physical evidence, which uh, it, it can be you know, recorded, examined, uh, tested, uh, and so on. This, uh, the experiment was monitored for two years by a team of skeptical investigators from the British Society for Psychical Research and um, passed with flying colors. They could find you know, no evidence of 
tampering or fakery of any kind. Um, <clears throat> one of the most intriguing uh, artifacts that showed up physically in their room out of nowhere uh, was uh, were two newspapers published in, in early 1940s uh, during the war years. And uh, when Tim Coleman and I went and visited the Skull folks and uh, filmed them over, over a long weekend, uh, they showed us these artifacts. And I held this newspaper in my hand. And I can tell you that uh, it was the, the outer pages had begun to yellow a little bit, but the inside pages were, were pure white. As if the newspaper had just come off the press, and yet it had obviously been been uh, printed in I think it was 1944 or thereabouts. Um, and the uh, investigators had had this paper uh, tested by the um, um, I forget the name of the organization. It's a, a, a paper and printing uh, analytical uh, organization, and they said yes, this this newsprint, the the paper it was printed on. Uh, had to have been, this had to have been printed in the war years because it was chemically unique to that era. Um, so there, there were, there were many uh, ways in which these phenomena could be scientifically verified and they were. Um, to, getting back to your point about those who deny this and say this cannot possibly have happened, I, I don't know, what can you do? I, I, you know, my attitude has tended to be well, let them disbelieve. It's not my problem. <laughs> we cannot control anyone else's belief system. Right, right. Well, I think, oh, you know, I, I think it's we can we can uh, present evidence, uh, but we can't force it down people's throats. And, you know, there will always be those who disagree with us, who want to look the other way. And, it, you know, it, it can be painful for people who are, you know, say, raised with a certain philosophy or religion or um, a very heavy dose of um, uh, mainstream science, even. Uh, mainstream science being very often beholden to institutional priorities and, and uh, social and academic uh, cultural pressures, so on. And, um, you know, people have, have their, their personal investments in, in, in their own status quo. Um, one, of the, one of the things that Rupert Sheldrake taught me was that um, when you get academics after hours in the pub, they will very often uh, discuss things that they would not ordinarily share among their other colleagues or their or even their students. So, um, and that's that's understandable. I mean, you know, we're all human. We all have these pressures to contend with in our lives, and um, I think all we can do is the best we can do. And you've been going above and beyond. <laughs> for so many years. You know what? I think you've been at it even longer than I have, Dan, which is uh, really saying something. But, but you, you, broke, you broke some really interesting ground with your, with your academic pursuits at UC Berkeley. And that I'm, I'm, I'm sure that your viewers are well aware of it, but could you say, just for, just for a moment, could you um, go back to that time when you received what is, as far as I know, still the world's only PhD in parapsychology. Uh, I think I have the only piece of parchment, uh, a, a diploma from an accredited university in, in which it says that my major was parapsychology. My doctoral major was parapsychology, which makes me a very lonely person in a way because that degree was awarded in 1980. And, and it wouldn't have been awarded but for the fact that it was an individual interdisciplinary program. And after I got the degree, the uh, University of California closed down the individual interdisciplinary doctoral program. I think they didn't want any more, but it's been subsequently reopened now. So it's a good thing because interdisciplinary studies are very important. Uh, every university should allow students who want to do a dissertation uh, on a topic where no department will sponsor you, but you can find faculty members from different departments who are willing to do so. And, and that's what I did. So uh, it, it, it was a joy and, and also a very traumatic experience because the closer I got to achieving my uh, 
matriculation, my diploma, uh, the more obstacles were thrown at me. And then finally, after I did receive the diploma, the uh, organized scoffers pressured the university to withdraw it. And I actually had to fight a libel suit, which uh, was, was also very painful. But now, looking back with the benefit of many decades, I can say, you know, because it was settled favorably in my behalf, it enabled me to buy real estate in California at a time uh, when it was much less expensive than it is today. So to the extent that that I have some wealth in in my life, uh, it, it's ironic. It's because the skeptics attacked me so uh, viciously when they did. And and of course, you know, you you also um, uh, won the uh, that little uh, prize last year as well. Was it last year or this year? Well, it was in twenty twenty one. The Bigelow competition. And congratulations on that. Well, you know, if you had known about the prize, you might have won it too, Dan. In fact, I uh, included excerpts from your videos in in my award-winning essay. And uh, uh, frankly, I think the work that you have done uh, uh, was equally deserving of such a prize. And, and uh, it's unfortunate, as I recall, you didn't learn about it till after the deadline. Right. That's that's true. Um, I'm not sure I would have I would have entered in any case, but I'm very glad that my work was able to contribute to your success and and uh, you know getting I think getting the word out by whatever means is really important. Um, so anyway, thank you, and uh, and I'm I'm pleased to have been part of the team, as it were. And I'm grateful for for the work that you have done. You have brought out and, and made more concrete than any of the books that I have read some of the amazing uh, features of the skull research that, that you've just described. But I'd also like to go back to the instrumental trans communication work because it's amazing how Konstantin Radova, with his very unique voice, has come through, I think, to as many as, I think you report, maybe as many as a hundred different investigators of instrumental trans communication have heard from this deceased individual. Right. And, and one of the most remarkable things about him is that his, his voice, and again, he's come through on, in, in many different countries to many different experimenters, um, and he has been able to maintain these communications for at least several minutes running, which is extraordinary, because most instances of, of EVP and ITC tend to be really last only a few seconds, enough to make a statement. Um, but Radova's communications have been conversational, and he, he, um, he communicates in this very sort of uh, gruff but warm tone. His, his his voice and his mannerisms are 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 the same uh, across all of these various forms of communication, tape, radio, uh, and so on, um, wherever he's come through. And yet, I tracked down the one recording of him during his lifetime, and he sounds nothing like that. He sounds like a more shy and cerebral scientist. And so I had this theory that this, this kind of aggressive personality that comes through in all of his communications uniformly is um, a kind of a, um, of a persona that he either created or borrowed or took on for the purpose of being able to blast through the resistance that apparently exists between the, the, the planes of, of reality. And uh, <clears throat> through this team of mediums that I work with, um, I've had several conversations with him, and he confirmed that this is exactly what he had to do. And, you know, how, how this is done, I assume it's done uh, by, a, by, a, uh, by means of a very strong intention, strong and consistent intention almost like a creative act of creating this personality on the other side that has the guts and the persistence to, <clears throat> to maintain what 
must on some level be a very difficult um, um, trying to think of a metaphor here uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a of a soldier running through enemy fire in a way the strong resistance um, that may be nothing more than a matter of trying to plow into a lower frequency of reality um, which is apparently what it is and how how these communications get technically how they get through to our communication devices uh, is anyone's guess they, they may use a variety of different approaches and techniques in the in the skull experiment um one of their contacts on the other side that said that you know i'm i i can speak and you can hear me or i can think and you can hear my my words but it's the job of someone else to do that translation that there are specialized entities um whose whose job it is to take the uh, the words or the imagery or or the intention on the other side and somehow funnel them down into our physical plane by one means or another. And my, my sense is that, that we, from our perspective, will never actually understand the mechanisms involved and that it doesn't matter that much. That the important thing is the, the, the fact of the communication and the contents of the communication. And, you know, we can be as analytical as we want and, and you know, do our best in trying to understand these things. But I think, again, the contents of the communication are, are, are the most important thing, and that, that we need to listen to them and consider them. Um, many of Raudava's communications have involved, you know, social concerns, uh, drugs, violence, that sort of thing. They're, these things are so preve prevalent in our cultures these days. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think if, if we were more open to these communications and, and uh, you know, regardless of the particular technical means, just the the intention and the desire to to uh, to hear from from these folks who, you know, they, they may not be uh, evolved as gods, but they have um, what the late Francis Vaughan has called the balcony view of Earth affairs. They have a a um, a little broader perspective, can see a little bit through space and time, and can can. If, if we accept it, can advise us uh, on perhaps the wisest path through our, our current challenges. Um, Francis Vaughn, whom I know you had, did a wonderful interview with some years ago, uh, she, she passed actually on my birthday in 2017. She was out to dinner with her husband and friends, and she just passed right, right then and there. And uh, since that time, she has uh, come through to a friend of mine, Cynthia Spring, who is uh, a writer and uh, activist and so on, and had been a good friend of uh, hers and um, began to receive these messages from her through automatic writing. And then they began to meet sort of psychically on the, on the astral plane. And the result of this has been three books or two books. The third book is, is <clears throat> about to be published soon. First book is called Seven Questions About Life After Life. It's a wonderful sort of primer for, for people who are just beginning to, um, to understand that there is an afterlife. And what's, what's its nature? And the second book is called um, Seven Questions About the Greater Reality. And the third one is called, uh, about to be published, called uh, Seven Stories to Light the Way Home, which is really it's a book of stories more than anything else. So Francis is one of these folks on the other side who has been working with, with our team, um, and uh, her perspective and her because she's so articulate has been very helpful. Uh, this whole idea of, of the balcony view of human affairs that that comes from her, um, I think, gives us a sense of it. And um, more I could say about that, but. Um, I could actually, I could go a hundred different places. <laughs> well, one of the wonderful things about your book is a chapter when, when you explore what is the afterlife like and you report on the experience of a number of people who have come back to tell about it in, in different ways through different mediums or other resources. Right. Um, and it's, I, I find it, I find it incredibly fascinating 
to to understand this variety of experience that can take place. And and in, I should say, in the introduction to my book, I make it very clear that I'm not trying to start a new religion. These these are this is information and experience that's come to me in my own life uh, that I found fascinating, interesting, and important. And people can take it or leave it. Um, I just you know try to make it as as appetizing and, and interesting as possible. Um, anyway, yes, the, the the variety of afterlife experience. I mean, there, there are certain commonalities, certain common ground, as there is in our physical lives. And but beyond that, there's the uniqueness of experience that we bring with us from. When we go to the other side. We bring our experience of the immediately past life, uh, which often involves unfinished business that we have to resolve within ourselves. Once we get there, there's a certain amount of, of acclimation to a new type of environment that goes on. And we're evidently um, helped along the way by guides and counselors and, um, and old friends who may show up, relatives and so on. Um, and, um, you know, it's I'm, one of my favorite metaphors for the afterlife is I think it comes from Seth, who said that. Um, Death is perfectly safe and natural. It's like taking off a tight shoe. And if you kind of extrapolate that idea to, you know, we let go of our bodies, we let go of our physical constraints. And, you know, we have access to higher and more interesting and often more beautiful and subtle uh, senses of, of our environment. We have access to our own subconscious that's been pretty much blocked from us. Uh, in our, you know, no matter how much therapy we may have done in our lives, there's still um, these patterns at work in, in unconscious and subconscious levels in our psyche that we take with us. Um, but they're evidently easier to access um, if we're willing to look at them to clear them out. There's the process of the life review, which we know from any number of near-death experiences who've come back and described it in detail. Which is a you know sometimes challenging but wonderful opportunity to um, to kind of suck the marrow out of the life we've just lived and and um, and gain the the wisdom that we may not have realized we acquired in in, in that life. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to it actually, <laughs> challenges and all. And um, my 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 spies on the other side say now. And you're because you're going to be around for a while longer, so don't get too eager. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear you're going to be around longer because I can well imagine that we might want to do some follow up interviews, Dan. You have such a wealth of knowledge. Again, this has been for me as much uh, a learning experience as a teaching experience, and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that I'm grateful to myself that I've seen it through to publication. Well, I highly recommend the book. It's uh, not a difficult book. It's not a lengthy book. And, and there have been difficult and lengthy books written on this topic. But in spite of its uh, brevity, it contains a vast amount of information, uh, which is really quite unusual. You've done a, a magnificent job of pulling it all together and getting right to the point, being quite succinct about it. Thank you. That was that was my goal in in writing this. And um, you know, when it's funny when I when I saw the first printed copies, I said, "Wow, this is this is a slim volume." And then I realized, that, well, maybe it will it will seem more digestible and more appealing to people who are just getting their feet wet in this area. Um, you know, it's not not being a challenging tome. Well, I do have a question before we close our interview. The subtitle of your book is Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. And I noticed that your chapter on the Consciousness Code might have been the shortest chapter in, in the book. And yet, the, conscious, the idea of a Consciousness Code seems so intriguing to me. So, I, I wonder if you can explain a, a little bit about what, what you mean. It's like... Uh, Consciousness is everywhere, and yet it seems almost invisible to us. Well, that's exactly the point. Um, you know, a code is is something that's not uh, not obvious not obvious on the surface, 
And we, we may know it's a code or we may, may not even know it's a code. Um, and these can be codes can be natural, like the DNA code or uh, the shape of a plant's leaves or the language of a bird's particular bird species. That's a code. Um, and then, of course, there are, you know, human made codes, encrypted information and so on. Um, and then there are codes which we're not aware of because they're hiding in plain sight. And the point of this little chapter is that consciousness is one of these codes that hides in plain sight. You know, what could be more obvious than our own consciousness? And yet our culture and our language and our sciences um, essentially put up a screen or, or distract us from being aware um, of what could, what is the ab most absolutely obvious aspect of reality, which is the fact that we're aware of it. Dan Drazen, it's a great joy for me to share this time with you and to have known you for so many decades and, and watched your work evolve. I'm very grateful to be able to share your wisdom and your knowledge with the New Thinking Aloud audience. Dan, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, well, it's the appreciation is mutual, Jeffrey. Take, take good care. You too, my friend, and I hope uh, we do more of these. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. We've just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.